Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that Christ has taken our sin and nailed it to the cross in his own body. I thank you that he has there put to public shame all the principalities and powers of darkness and claimed a victory over them so that in their time they will be cast into the lake of fire and now they can take no move beyond what he permits. And so, Father, I pray that you, in the name of Jesus Christ, would enclose, restrict, bind, and hinder all demonic powers in this room and in this building. I pray that you would frustrate the designs of the devil to conceal the glory of Jesus and the true way that leads to heaven. I pray that you would open the hearts of people that never dreamed they would be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen today. And I pray that Christ would be exalted and would stand in this room and in this building in such a way that those without him would fall back as on the night in Gethsemane when he said, I am he. And the mob ready to crucify him fell back. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I will take it again. At that moment, Jesus was in charge. And though devil, you thought you had a victory, you were defeated. And so Christ reign now over these remaining minutes of this meeting. And may all believers be praying. And may all those without Christ find themselves drawn to a glorious salvation and an everlasting joy. In Christ's name I pray and everybody said, Amen. I would like to base my message this morning on Romans 1, 7, and 8. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it and turn there with me. I'll be looking at other things in the context. But let's look together at Romans 1, verses 7 and 8. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And you can see from verse 8 where I get the title for this message, namely, I thank God or let us thank God for famous faith. Paul is thanking God for the Roman Christians because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, it's famous faith. I thank God that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is famous faith. My aim this morning is to so work with this famous faith that God might be pleased to come and grant you to share in famous faith. If you're a believer, I hope that your faith will be made stronger. Just like Paul says down in verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, my prayer is that your eyes might be opened and that your heart might be made soft and that your reason might be cleared and that you might embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Here's my main question. I only have one question, and I'll give six answers to it. 
The question is, why is Paul so thankful for famous faith? When he says, I thank God for you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Why is he so thankful for this famous faith? And I see at least six reasons for why he is so faithful. Let me say what the reason is not, first of all. He was never in Rome yet. He hasn't been there. He didn't plant this church. Therefore, he's not saying, I am so thankful that my labor was not in vain. He's not saying that. He didn't labor there. Some of his converts might have gone there. When you read chapter 16, he loves these people and called some of them his very precious ones. So it may be that some of his converts migrated over to Rome, but Paul did not plant the church in Rome. And therefore, this is so good for us on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. He is not thinking mainly about my fruitfulness that I'm thankful for. If you have any fruitfulness in your life, you should be thankful. But oh, how big our hearts should be. There are five churches represented here. Oh, how thankful we should be when a good thing happens to another church. And woe to us, Christians, if we silently or secretly gloat when something bad happens to any church that names the name of Christ. Paul is thankful here because something good has happened in Rome and he's never been there. There's a lesson there for us. Don't miss it. As we move towards answering the question, why is he so thankful? So I have six reasons, and here's number one. Paul is thankful for the famous faith of the church in Rome because Christ is the one they have faith in. Romans 3.21 But now the, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God... Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Or he even says it more clearly in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The faith he's talking about here is not... Faith in a vague deity. It's not faith in a spirit medium. It's not faith in witchcraft. It's not faith in any kind of new age channeling. It is not faith in any Hindu deity or Buddhist principle or Allah. It is faith in Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, King of kings, and Lord of lords. That is who he's talking about here, and that is the faith which he is so excited about. That's reason number one. And he's glad it has spread all over the world, and we should be too. Reason number two. Paul is thankful for famous faith in the church in Rome because... He had a passion and a calling to see the name of Christ exalted 
among the nations. We need to realize that Paul's passion here about this is given him by God. You can see it in verse 5. I'll read verses 4 and 5. Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, that is, through this Jesus, now Paul talks about himself and his calling and his passion, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all the nations, for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's passion here is given by God. You have a grace, Paul, and you have a calling in order to preach and teach and suffer so that the name of Jesus will be made much of in all the world. That's why he's so thankful that faith, faith in Christ is being spread through all the world. The name of Jesus in verse 5 refers to the fame of his truth and wisdom and power and beauty. Paul has seen it. Many of you have seen it. He is so eager for it to spread so that when he hears that it is spreading, he says, oh, God, thank you that my calling and my grace is being fulfilled even when I'm not directly involved in it. Reason number three why he's so thankful for famous faith is this. This faith is well-founded. Faith in Christ is well-founded. In other words, faith in Paul's mind is not a leap in the dark. It is a response to the revelation of light. I'll say that again. Faith for the Apostle Paul, indeed, faith throughout the Bible, is not a leap in the dark. It is a soul-mind response to the revelation of light. And this revelation of light is not merely subjective. It is rooted in history and it is mediated by an objective word of God called the Bible. We're not cut loose to just have opinions about what spiritual movements might be helpful Rooted in history, there is a God-man, Christ, living, loving, dying, rising. And then there is a word in the Bible, authoritative, self-authenticating, by which we test all things, including all the things happening in this building at this very moment. We're not left without a rule and a guideline as to what is true and what is false. Now, why is this so important to stress? It's important to stress because people are rejecting Christianity or Christ or the gospel for all kinds of reasons today. For example, before I mention these two examples, let me mention that I like getting nearer to the center of downtown. Even though we're pretty close at Bethlehem and the other churches are not too far away. I like moving in on the center. There are a couple of things I know about the center of this town. I know them from personal experience. I know them from yesterday's jogging. 
and they all reveal reasons for why people reject what I'm preaching right now. One of the things that's true about downtown is downtown, I have friends, I would like to call them that anyway, clergy, preaching probably within a bow shot from here, with whom I have had lunch and been to groups and talked and pled, who do not believe Jesus is the only way to God. And I'm not just referring to Jewish people, but Christian pastors who would hear me say what I'm saying here, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord over all lords, and that faith in him is the only way to be right with God, and regard that as the most arrogant thing I could say in this room. I like getting close to downtown and proclaiming the truth. There is a sense in which nothing is really substantiated. Nothing is really revealed in objective power and certainty. Everything is up for grabs. What your opinion is for you is good. And what my opinion is for me is good. And let every movement stand. Yesterday I was jogging. You know my bearings here. I think. Is that north? Doesn't matter. Make it up right if it isn't. And I was jogging down 2nd Avenue, turning onto 9th Street. There's a YWCA housing unit there. And a man who I hope is in this room right now, Jonathan, if you're here, bless you for coming. So I stopped. I saw him reading a book. Smoked a cigarette, reading a book. No filters on these cigarettes. And I turned around and came back and stopped and I said, what you reading? And it was a book about tigers, I think, or something. We talked about it for a while. And then I said, this is a YWCA Christian. And he said, used to be. <laughs> I said, oh, what do you think about Christ? And get me, tell me, Jonathan, if I get this wrong now. He said, anybody who thinks that an angel came down from heaven, zapped a virgin, and made her pregnant with the creator of the universe has got to be almost insane. I think that was almost his exact words. And I said, hmm. And I made it worse. I said, you know, I think that this Jesus, born of that virgin, grew up, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross for our sins. And he shook his head. He said, I don't believe that. Nobody can die for another person's sins. And then I made it worse. I said, I said, well, I think that God created us and that we sin, and that he's angry at us, and that we should be afraid, and that if we don't believe in Christ, we should be terrified because we won't have eternal life. He said, you people, oh, you're afraid of everything. You're afraid of God. You're afraid of everything, he said. And I said, 10.30 tomorrow morning. You see that building down there? Got a little poke, a dome on top. 
I'm going to be preaching to 3,000 people down there tomorrow morning. Would you come hear me so I can finish the story? He said, yeah, I'll come. So I, I hope you're here, Jonathan. I also said, and I say to you now, Jonathan, make a little room for mystery in your mind. And don't call great things insane too quickly. And one of these nights, Jonathan, you're going to wake up and you too are going to be afraid, really afraid. And your conscience is going to testify to you, you ought to be afraid. Because there is a God in heaven and we are sinners and we're out of step and sync with him. And if there's no mediator, if there's no savior, if there's no way to get my sins forgiven by somebody who can take my place, I am lost forever. And you will, I hope and pray, remember that I have proclaimed to you the way of life because Jesus Christ is not a myth. Oh, how I pray there are many Jonathans in this room. I hope many of you are here. We don't mind if you start by saying, this is the craziest thing I have ever heard in my life. This has got to be a myth. Only imbeciles can believe such crazy things. We don't mind if you start there. We'll listen and then we'll respond and try to give reasons and show that written on the Bible, written on history, written on your own heart are truths that you may have been resisting all your life. The point of that little story is simply that uh, Christianity is not too fantastic in fact, Jonathan, do you remember, do you remember, you made one little slip while you were talking, and I picked up on it. You said, this is too true to be good. And you meant to say, this is too good to be true. That's really close. That's really close. It's almost too good. To be true. That's the way the gospel sounds. That's the way the history of Christ sounds to people. I've talked to people and they say it's just too good to be true. That someone could bear my sin. That I could be forgiven for all that I've ever done against God. That I could have a righteousness that is not my own. That's just too good to be true. I cannot take an hour here to give you a lecture on the credibility of the Bible or the historic authenticity of Scripture. So what I'll do on this point just before I move on is simply this. I want to read to you a passage that shows that if you're prone to, to blow away Christianity or blow away Christ or blow away the Bible, you need to at least hear this. I want to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. This is something else Paul wrote. And what he wrote there was that his own faith and his own revelation and what he's mediating in the Bible is rooted in a personally experienced, historically verifiable sight of the resurrection. Let me read what he wrote. He said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Do you see what Paul is doing there? He's he's beckoning unbelievers. He's beckoning skeptics. Come and listen now. I am telling you that as I write this, there are people alive who saw Jesus die, saw him buried, saw him risen, eating fish in a resurrection body, ascending into heaven where he rules now. There are people that saw that. And as he wrote this, the people who read his letter could have gone to check it out to see if it was so. So here's the here's the situation you're put in as a skeptic, as a doubter. You're put in a position of. I've got to come to terms with whether this man is a liar or crazy or a megalomaniac. And the only way I know to help you do that is to say, go there, get a Bible, get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, call any of these churches listed here and we'll send you a Bible free. And just read the letters of Paul, there are about 13 of them, and say, does this man sound crazy or can he or Jesus in the Gospels win your trust so that you can back up, say, hmm, I wonder if that crazy thing about the virgin might really be so. You don't need to start there. Start with Jesus. Start with the kind of person he was. Start with what he said. Start with his analysis of your heart. And whether there's anything that rings true there, start with this assessment of the world and whether that makes sense. Start with the big picture so that it all begins to fall into place. And then it trickles down to, well, you know, that might make sense. If God were to penetrate the world to save sinners in the form of his own son as a God man, I suppose he should be born of a virgin with God as his father and a woman as his mother. You might arrive there. Reason number four, Paul is thankful for famous faith because faith in Christ shows that Christ is trustworthy and valuable. And this is just simple, plain common sense, isn't it? If you trust somebody, you show that they're trustworthy, especially if you trust them with your life, especially if you trust them through suffering You show that they're trustworthy. So Paul wanted Christ to be seen as trustworthy in the world. And so when he saw faith spreading everywhere, he said, faith will show he's trustworthy. Faith is not merely banking on Christ to do something for you, like save you from hell. Faith is more than that. Faith is also an embrace, a receiving, and a treasuring of Christ himself. Faith is in the gospel, and Christ is the gospel. I love to think these days about the gospel and what the essence of it is. What is the good news that we Christians offer to the world? What's the good news? The good news is not merely forgiveness of sins, because why would anybody want to be forgiven? It's not merely escape from hell, because who cares about going to heaven if it's boring? It's not merely anything that is a gift of God. 
our gospel is you may have all your sins removed so that you may have a fellowship with God himself. Jesus and his father are the gospel. Therefore, faith, when it spreads, shows that Jesus is not merely trustworthy. He is treasure. He is the end of your quest. If you're wondering this morning what life is for and where pleasure can be found and everlasting satisfaction, my answer is not a mere sentence. It's not a mere getting something bad out of your life. The gospel is Christ coming into your life and then one day when you die, maybe you have a bullet hole in the lung and in the stomach, and three seconds later you see him and it's okay because he is better than everything this world has to offer. That's what faith would display to the world if it spread everywhere. And oh, may it spread in Minneapolis through these churches represented here. Reason number five. Paul is excited and thankful that faith is spreading through the world because faith produces visible acts of sacrificial love. God is not merely interested in us having invisible faith in our heart. Who cares about invisible faith if the, if the purpose of God is to display His glory in the world? If He wants to be seen as great and you have invisible faith, nobody knows you have faith. It has no effects on your life. Who cares about that? I wouldn't care if six billion people trusted God if it didn't produce anything. Neither would God. And it doesn't remain unfruitful. And that's why he is so thrilled that faith is spreading. It's because, how does it say it in Galatians 5, 6? Faith working through love. Or Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The only earthly value of having faith is because it becomes visible in love. Sure, it's faith that is the thing that unites you to Jesus that gets you heaven and not hell. But here, the evidence that that faith is real is visible acts of sacrificial love. When you love people at great cost to yourself because Christ is your all, the world sees, wow, Christ must be glorious. He must be sufficient. If this person is willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, in order to love another person and inconvenience themselves, go to another place, do a hard thing, Christ really must be great. And since Paul loves the greatness of Christ, he loves it when faith is spreading and showing that. You know, in the early church, Stephen Neal, who wrote the history of Christian missions, said, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith with the cost of his life. In the first four centuries, roughly, to become a Christian is to become a part of a group that might get you killed. We haven't tasted that in America for 300 years. It's almost impossible for us to believe what Christianity really is in many, many parts of the world today and has been in parts of the world throughout history. Now, when Christians loved others in that setting, it really glorified God. In fact, the Emperor Julian 
in the fourth century wrote this about the Christian faith, which he hated. He called it atheism because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. And here's what he wrote. And oh, may it grip us right now in this room that we would become this way. Atheism, he wrote. This is on History of Christian Missions, page 42. Atheism, meaning Christian faith, has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew. Now, that was a compliment to the Jews who were not Christians as well as Christians. So I want to make sure they get their due here from the fourth century. There is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, that's us, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. That's the emperor complaining about the loving, sacrificial service of Christians, both to their own wounded, hurt, poor, and the unbelievers. Oh, how grieved I get when I hear Christians hearing somebody quote First John. If you don't have any love for your brother, you don't know God. And they say, yeah, but it says brother. It says brother. Like, you don't have to love your enemy. You can hate your enemy and, and love your brother and, and have God. That is not what First John means. And it's all over the Bible to make clear that it's not. And so may it come true. May those of you who are doubtful about Christianity, may you see Christ come on in and help us be more like Jesus. We're not claiming to be perfect. Christ is perfect. Christ is the reason somebody should be a Christian, not me or anybody else in this room. And I close now with reason number six. Paul is thankful for famous faith because God gave the faith and he should get all the glory and the thanks for it. Suppose Pastor Brent Nelson, who took the offering here, was driving by my house, which is a little ways away from here, and I was in Toronto and he saw my wife changing a tire on our car. And he stops, says, Noel, can I help you? And he helps her. And the word gets back to me that Brent stopped and helped my wife. And I get on the phone and call Rick Gamash and say, Rick, yeah, I just wanted to thank you that my tire got changed. Thank you, thank you, thank you that my tire got changed. See you later. Goodbye. Now, you would say, Piper is losing his senses. You thank the person who did the deed. So when Paul says, I thank you, God, that this faith, this famous faith is so powerful and clear and authentic, it's spreading everywhere, that means something about God's relation to that faith. He did it. He brought it to pass. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, some of you very shrewd and sharp Bible readers might say, uh-uh, no, 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 Piper, be careful. 
That is not what it says. What it says is, I thank God for you that your faith is proclaimed. Not that he gave the faith or that they have the faith. So what it might mean is, I I thank you, God. No, he didn't even say that. They did their own faith, and then God saw to it that it spread, and that's what he's thanking them for. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that even though it could stand in verse 8, it can't stand in all the other things Paul says about their faith. Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.25, correct your opponents in gentleness. God may perhaps grant them to repent. 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? What then, if you received it, why you boast as though it were not a gift? 1 Corinthians 3.6, now here he describes how churches get planted, including the one in Rome, and he says... I planted, Apollos watered. He didn't plant the church in Rome, but you can extrapolate to whoever did. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. So we may be sure and we may rejoice that faith is enabled and given by God. And why do I say we may rejoice. For this reason, and I say this to you, Jonathan, I say it to Roy Green if you're here, I say it to all of those who are doubters or skeptics or somewhere along the way. John Piper is a sinner, a selfish, rebellious, proud, self-exalting sinner. And if I were left to myself, and if you were left to yourself, we would not trust Jesus. Because trusting Jesus is submissive, Christ-exalting, not self-exalting, childlike, not self-reliant. And by nature, we don't like being childlike. We don't like being submissive. We don't like letting another person call the shots or meet our needs. We don't want to be on the eternal welfare roads of heaven. And if the Holy Spirit does not come and humble me and you, we'll never believe. That's why I say I rejoice that faith is a gift of God. Well, I'm finished, except for one more story. And I tell you this story, I'll I'll read one paragraph as we close. Because I thought that maybe... If you're in process, if I mean, I believe that all of you are in this room by divine design. God got you here. And if one person off the street, maybe you were walking by and saw the crowd and said, what's happening? And you walked in here. Maybe that's you. If you were the only one that responded to this whole event that may cost, well, I don't know, $15,000, I would be thrilled. Who can count the value of one person who makes his way into heaven?
And if that's you, it would be thrilling. And I thought it might be helpful for you to hear how it happened to C.S. Lewis. May God give you the grace to follow this story. Here he is. You remember C.S. Lewis. He died on the same day that John Kennedy died. Was that two days ago? He was an Oxford literary scholar and writer. And he was an atheist at age 29 until God moved. And listen to how it happened. See if this doesn't reflect your own experience and help you move forward toward Christ. He wrote this. Really? A young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side, like a pastor running down 2nd Avenue on a Saturday morning. Who would think, who would think a preacher would jog by and stop with a shirt called Providence on his chest and talk to me? Who would think of such a thing? One must be very careful where one smokes his cigarettes outside one's abode. For the first time, he said, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. Have you done this? We've all done it, if we're honest. I found there a zoo of lusts a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. How could the initiative lie on my side if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet? It must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could never initiate anything. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. And admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. I tell you, it is one of the sweetest aspects of the gospel that God saves sinners, some of whom have to be brought in kicking. Screaming, struggling, and with their eyes darting in every direction so that they could, if possible, find a way of escape. And there is no possibility. God has cut them all off because he loves us so much. Oh, may God grant that you would believe him. Let me pray as we move to the end. Oh, Father in heaven. I plead with you that if Jonathan is in the room, he would believe. If Roy is in the room, he would believe. And that all the others here who came doubting or skeptical or unsure would find themselves brought lovingly, wooed, and irresistibly drawn by the Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ and to everlasting joy.